Right now, though, we're going to go into God's Word, reading from Exodus chapter 32, on page 88 of the Church Bibles, if you have one. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast into the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, "Why why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in in the mountains and to wipe them out off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went to the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant of law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. 
and all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves golds of, gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book of you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, Let me add my welcome to Jeff and Corolla. Uh, My name is Jack. If I haven't met you, I'm the student minister here. And it's my great privilege this morning to be able to uh, open up uh, God's word with you. Uh, Before we get started, how about we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you're a God who speaks to his people, that you're not a God who stands distant, um, but that we can hear from you through your word. We pray that this morning as we uh, read through the Bible uh, and think through the uh, idea of worship, Lord, um, that you would be growing us in our knowledge and understanding of what it means to, uh, to live for you, uh, what it means that you are our God, uh, and that uh, we should seek to uh, live in worship of you with all of our lives, Lord. Amen. Uh, well, over the next couple of weeks, as Jeff said, uh, we're going to be thinking through uh, worship. Uh, thinking through what is worship, what does it mean to be a worshipper of God, uh, how as a church do we, do we do this together, and where do things like music and prayer fit in. Um, it's such a big topic and a big kind of uh, thing for us to be thinking through together, and these are the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking over the next couple of weeks. But today we're starting with asking that question of worship, uh, well, what is it? What is worship? If I were to go around the room right now and ask everyone uh, what worship is, I wonder what you'd say. Uh, It's a topic uh, that there's been so many books written on. Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about this topic and we've just got two weeks uh, to go through it together, which, you know, I'm not personally convinced that's enough time uh, because for Christians, worship is meant to be all of life. It's a big thing. Worship isn't a once a week thing, even once a day thing. It's all of life. And that's what we're going to be looking through over the next couple of weeks. See, our common understanding of what worship is today, I think, revolves around the amount of worth that someone places in something and that leading to that person's response to said thing. And in your life, the, the thing that you place the, the most amount of worth in, that's, that's what you worship. So uh, someone might place uh, a lot of worth in their image. So their response to said image is to spend more money on expensive clothes, on, you know, haircuts, manicures, pedicures, that kind of thing. Uh, they worship image and it's seen in how they pursue 
looking good. That's where they're worth, that's the worth that they lay uh, in image. Or someone might place worth in being an athlete, so they spend all their time practicing basketball, tennis, uh, soccer, footy, rugby, any sport. Uh, They're in the gym for hours every day. They skip out on other things so that they can play their sport. Uh, They worship sport and it's seen in how they pursue that sport. The thing that they place the most worth in uh, is seen as the thing that they worship. But I think when it comes to truly understanding what worship is, there's actually much more to it than just placing worth in something and that affecting your response to that thing. See, there's nothing wrong with being presentable, is there, with with looking good. There's nothing wrong with enjoying sport and pursuing sport and wanting to get better at sport, is there? You see, I think a, a biblical understanding of worship actually leads us to the conclusion that worship doesn't actually start with us. It doesn't start with us and doesn't start with what we place worth in. Worship always starts with God. Worship starts with God and with how we were created. If you have a Bible, you might want to flick through. Uh, We're going to be flicking through all over the place today. Uh, But Genesis, uh, the start of the Bible, the first book, the first three chapters, we see the account of God creating the world. He creates the world, he creates humanity by speaking it into existence. We also see in those first three chapters, in chapter 3, the fall, as sin enters the world. Now these chapters really show us uh, three things about worship that we're going to think through uh, really quickly. Firstly, it shows us that worship originates with the creator, the one who creates, God. Secondly, it shows us that worship is the natural response of mankind to God. Uh, You see Adam and Eve, their lives are devoted to living in obedience and trusting in God. It's a natural response of mankind to God. And thirdly, it shows us that as sin entered the world in the fall, that natural response of worship to God became an unnatural one became an unnatural one as the hearts of humanity turned away from God and sought after other things. So, biblically speaking, what is worship meant to be? For us today, worship uh, should be on the next slide. Worship is the God-enabled response that brings all of someone to respond to all of God. See, worship is all of life. It's not just a portion of it. See, thinking through our creation, it was God who created Adam and Eve, who led them to uh, obey him and to trust in his world uh, and gave them authority over his creation. Adam and Eve who worked the garden at God's command, physically tending it and caring for God's creation. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, if you have that in front of you, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. See, Adam and Eve are the original worshippers of God. They respond to God in actions. The lives are given over to living in worship of God. I think it's a pretty common misconception um, that worship is just, you know, emotional, uh, not a physical action. And I think that's why sometimes we uh, put worship into just that music box, uh, which for a lot of us here, let's be honest, music is probably the most emotional 
uh, that we get when we listen to music, when, when we sing. That's probably the most emotional we get. And we're thinking through uh, music as worship next week, and we're going to spend a lot of time thinking through that. But for today, in the beginning, the very first humans to walk this earth worshipped God as they dwelt with him in right relationship, responding to him in obedience. It wasn't a pause now and we're going to spend some time worshipping God kind of thing. It was all of life, life in the garden. Every breath that they breathed, every step they took was in obedience to God as they delighted in their creator. And it's a really beautiful picture that's painted, isn't it? And a really important thing to note is that it's not an enslavement of you must worship me. God doesn't force it on them. It's a choice. See, worship is not something that is forced. Actually, I think it's more accurate to say, uh, along with people who are a lot smarter than me, who have spent a lot far longer thinking through these things, uh, to say that people are actually worshippers from birth. It's how we're made. And that's true both of people who call themselves Christians and people who don't call themselves Christians. Because worship is to do with the heart. Everyone worships. And whether that worship is directed at God or directed at something else, everyone worships. Everyone's heart yearns for something. Everyone lives for something. As revealed in Genesis, though, when our hearts are not directed at God, when worship is not directed at God, who alone is worthy of worship, there are consequences. See, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, The heart has this habit of pointing away from delighting in God and seeking obedience to Him to seeking ourselves and to instead seeking created things rather than the God who created them. See, if worship is the God-enabled response that brings all of someone to respond to God, well, what happens when someone tries to replace God with something else? Because this is what we see in the garden. Chapter 3 as the serpent in the garden leads Adam and Eve um, to turn against God, twisting God's words so that they doubt his right to rule over their life and his care for them, instead seeking to worship themselves and not God. And from there, absolutely everything goes wrong. The result is the fall. Adam and Eve turn from obeying and trusting in God, thinking they know better than God and turning fully away from him. They refuse his right as king over their lives, choosing instead to seek their own gods, mainly themselves. But as we think through this idea of worship of God, we're led to this incredible plan that God has to bring people back to himself and save them from the penalty for that sin, bringing them back to be able to worship him freely once again. So we come to thinking through Um, Exodus 32, the passage that we had read out today. We see the actions of a God who loves his people and seeks to bring them back to himself. So point one should be on your outline there and up on the screen. A rebellious people uh, redeems. If you have a Bible handy as well, open up to Exodus. So the the story of Exodus is a pretty well-known one, isn't it? I mean, they've made a bunch of movies out of it, the latest Uh, having Christian Bale as Moses. Uh, It's a pretty epic movie if you haven't seen it. Uh, But the book of Exodus recounts God's actions towards his enslaved people, his people who were slaves to the Egyptians. And God calls upon Moses 
uh, to be his chosen advocate to lead the Israelites out from slavery to the Egyptians. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, we see the purpose for why God uh, wants, them, uh, wants Moses to do this. 8 verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. God rescues his people that they may worship him and again enjoy blessing under him as they live as his people. And through mighty works, God does this. He rescues his people, redeems them from out of slavery to the Egyptians. And then to top it off in Exodus chapter 19, God makes some amazing promises to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They will be God's treasured possession, his loved people. And the Israelites on their part, they confirm that they're going to do all that God has asked. And there's this really great moment. God's people are restored to himself. They're no longer slaves. They get to enjoy God and be his treasured possession. See, the God of creation again in, in relationship with his people. Them seeking to live in obedience to his word. God makes a way for a rebellious people to come to him and again know him and live in worship of him. We see a beautiful kind of restoration of what was in the garden at the beginning with Adam and Eve. But then, not surprisingly, the Israelites in Exodus 32, well, they show us that these people who've been redeemed from slavery and brought back to God are still slaves to something much worse than just the Egyptian nation. They're still slaves to the curse of sin. We see this as they choose to turn away from God and again decide for themselves who they should bow down and worship. That's point two. Rebellion despite being redeemed. In the way the Israelites choose to worship, we see their rebellious hearts. From 32 verse 1. Uh, when the people saw, Moses, uh, saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron, who was meant to be a leader of the Israelites, well, he does what they ask him to do. Aaron tells the Israelites to hand over the gold jewelry that they got from the uh, Egyptians. He melts it down and he makes a calf. And then he says to the Israelites in verse 5, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. They've agreed to obey God and live lives that are God-focused. They've agreed to exalt his name to all the nations, all the people around them. But as soon as their leader Moses disappears, as soon as they, they, they lose that kind of guidance, they forget all about God, instead choosing, down, choosing to bow down and worship a created thing rather than the creator, a calf that has been made out of gold. And it's pretty confusing kind of thing isn't it why why a calf is it the equivalent of me burning down all my uh jewelry i don't really have any but and then making like a bunny rabbit or something that i'm going to bow down to and and worship well for the israelites uh, a calf 
Well, it was the kind of image that the nations around them would bow down to and worship. It's a nation uh, of Egyptians would bow down to and worship images that looked like animals. And that's part of, of the really heartbreaking sadness of it all because by the Israelites choosing to bow down to this golden calf, it shows that they've already turned away from living in worship of God to being exactly like the nations around them. They're exactly like the nation that they've been rescued from. It's the Garden of Eden and the fall all over again. It's disobedience to God, relationship with God broken, worship of created things rather than the Creator. Despite being rescued from slavery by God, the Israelites choose to turn away from Him and pursue the kind of worship the nations around them partake in. Worship that is absent of God. Worship that says, my heart yearns for something to bring me fulfillment and so I'll follow that thing and act in a way that makes me close to that thing even though that thing isn't God. See, the golden calf really shows all of humanity's inability to obey God and worship Him. It's something that we in this room thousands of years later still struggle with. I mean, it's easy to read through a chapter of the Bible like this, isn't it? Uh, look at the Israelites' actions and to just think, wow, these guys are stupid. With their golden calf, they're bowing down to this creative thing. Bow down to a calf? That's so dumb. Meanwhile, we'll go home after church. Uh, we'll forget kind of what we've been talking about this morning. Uh, we might, might spend six hours instead bowing down to the golden calf of entertainment, of maybe Netflix or playing games or the golden calf of work the next day as that occupies our attention or the golden calf of money or reputation or image as we think oh no I've, I've spent my couple of hours you know having god time now it's now it's like me time now who are you worshiping it really raises the question for us what is your golden calf is there something that you worship that isn't god something that you might have to think hard about to be able to figure out what that is because if worship is to be reserved for God alone, if it's life-consuming, but our hearts yearn for something that isn't God, then we are bowing down to that golden calf, just like the Israelites did. Which is a pretty hard thought for us to have. And I know for me, it leaves me feeling completely inadequate when I think of all the times that I do do that. I know that I do do that. And then when it seems as though there's no solution to my stupidity, my inability to worship God as he deserves, well, there's something I'm reminded of, something that we should all be reminded of, and that's God's faithfulness. So point three, we have a faithful God. A faithful God who wants to bring people back to true worship. Exodus 32, God sees what the Israelites have done and he wants to destroy them, and rightly so. I mean, God is, he literally moves an ocean in Exodus chapter 14, uh, not to mention a heap of other amazing things in order to rescue the Egyptians. And the first thing they do is turn away from him again and forget all that, forget God. And yet God decides to hold back his wrath. He doesn't just utterly destroy them like they deserve. He does this in order that his promises to the Israelites may be kept. He is a faithful God. We see his faithfulness to his people despite their unfaithfulness 
to him. Though in Exodus 32, we definitely see that they don't go unpunished for what they've done. God takes sin very seriously and this becomes apparent. Exodus 32 ends with God saying to Moses from verse 34, Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron made. See, God takes their rebellion seriously. But again, he shows his faithfulness to his people by not just utterly destroying them but remembering his promises and keeping those promises. And by Exodus chapter 34, God has renewed this covenant that he made with them that got broken, again promising to lead the Israelites to the land he promised them, um, calling them to obedience to himself. And he says again to them, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. A faithful God seeks to bring his people back to true worship. But then we come to the, the end of the book of Exodus. There's, there's still this unanswered issue, this unanswered question to this big problem that the Israelites have. So the problem in Exodus isn't that they were enslaved to the Egyptians. So the, the problem in Exodus that becomes really apparent is that the Israelites were enslaved to something far worse than just a nation of people. They were enslaved to sin. We see this again and again in their actions throughout this book. They're just as susceptible to sin as Adam and Eve are, and as we are as well. But it's through the book of Exodus and God rescuing his people from slavery um, that we see the foreshadowing of something amazing, of God rescuing all of humanity from slavery, not just from under a mighty nation, but slavery to sin. Over the last couple of months, uh, we've heard from the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 1, we were reminded in verse 7, In him, meaning in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. See, as God redeemed the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians, he redeems us from slavery to sin. He makes forgiveness for our sins possible and he did it through the death of his son who took our punishment on himself. Worship is the God-enabled response that brings all of someone to respond to all of who God is. And this God of ours is amazing. So he loves us and he wants relationship with us. So much so that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place, that we might be forgiven, that we might be able to approach him again and be in relationship with him. And so if we're called to worship God and God alone, if it's a response to God and the restored relationship we have with him, uh, what does that mean for our lives? What does it look like for all of me to respond to God in worship? Last point there our lives as worship. Well, we live now the way we look forward to living in eternity with him. In Matthew uh, 22, verse 34, um, the gospel of Jesus, story of Jesus, uh, Jesus is asked uh, this question. In verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, uh, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We are to love God with all that we have, which means every action that we take is taken in the interest of expressing love for God who has shown us his mighty saving love. And notice the other person's sentence of this love, you know, Mike's favorite kind of catchphrase, other person's sentence. On the heels of loving God with our entire being, we're called to love those around us with this same kind of love that he shows to us, this same kind of sacrificial other person love. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, Paul the Apostle says in this book, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. See, it's after recognizing what God's love means for us and his mercy and grace showered down on us that we will be brought to respond to God in worship with our all. Uh, My mum and dad became Christians in the 80s after hearing about Jesus for the first time uh, on their honeymoon, of all places. Uh, They'd just been married. Uh, They were enjoying their honeymoon when they got a knock on the door. And they were pretty startled uh, as they looked up And they saw my uncle standing there before them on their honeymoon. Um, You can imagine what would have kind of gone through their minds when they're away for their honeymoon and uh, dad's brother rocks up, uh, kind of, oh no, has someone died? Is someone sick? Are you okay? Like, what's happening? But my uncle had become a Christian a while before that and he'd just decided uh, that mum and dad's honeymoon would be the perfect place to first tell them about Jesus. Um, I have since been counseled that this probably isn't the greatest approach to um, to sharing the gospel with someone, just FYI, if you were thinking of doing that. Um, but he shared the gospel with mum and dad, and they heard it, and then slammed the door in his face. They didn't really slam the door in his face, they, they listened, they were patient, um, but they weren't too happy that he rocked up then. But they heard the gospel. But it was a couple of years after that, Uh, that the message of life with Christ sank in. Uh, Mum first became a Christian in 1984, and I was talking to her about this, about this sermon, and she was reminded of those first couple of years of being a Christian and just how hard she found it. Uh, She found it hard uh, because she couldn't distinguish what worshipping God with her life was meant to look like. It was a constant mindset of, I have to keep, keep doing this thing to keep God happy. I have to serve in this way or I'm not worshipping God. And if I'm not worshipping God, then I'm sinning. And if I'm sinning, then my salvation, uh, surely that's at risk and uh, things are going to go really, really wrong. I mean, it's a massive burden to have to carry around on your shoulders that frame of mind and that way of thinking. But then after a couple of years of being a Christian, um, Mum read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, and the penny dropped. Her perspective on what it meant to live in worship of God completely changed forever as she heard about what grace was. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10 says this, 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, there's nothing that we can do to earn what God has given us in Christ. And we're not called to earn it. We don't live uh, in worship of God to make sure he doesn't suddenly change his mind uh, and send us to hell. We seek to live our lives as worshippers of God in response to the undeserved gift of life in Christ. Where we look forward to the restoration of how things were in the garden in the very beginning. Restoration is shown in Revelation 22, which should come up on the next slide. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We live today looking forward to this incredible reality. With every breath we take, every action, every thought we have, we seek to worship God, responding to who he is and seeking to exalt his name before all else. We live as Jesus teaches in the Bible and how he showed us himself through his selfless actions of dying on the cross in our place so that we could come back to and know God. So then how do you worship God with every area of your life every waking breath well it's certainly not as easy as it sounds and it doesn't actually sound that easy does it which is why we always always start with the reminder of god's grace it's paul saying in romans 12 in view of god's mercy see we couldn't live for god unless he showed us our great need for him so at work we start with God's grace. At school or uni, we start with God's grace. At home, in relationships, we start with God's grace. How we question, always question, are my actions in this situation God-centered, God-exalting actions, or are these actions for me? Are they focused on me and not God? Is God being worshipped in the relationship that I'm in? Is he being worshipped in the way that I do my job? being worshipped in the way I study and my actions towards, you know, that person who just gets under my skin, uh, in the way I serve a church on a Sunday, even in the way I drive. Now, put your hand out if you've ever been a bit angry behind the wheel when you're driving. Yeah, the fear, the fear, yeah. honest people, that's really good. Um, you know, someone cuts you off and you just start randomly screaming at them over your steering wheel behind, behind the glass and you know that they can't hear you. But just, just in that moment, when that happens and and you're just really for some reason just really unnecessarily angry well where's your heart pointed in that second well for me i can tell you it's definitely not pointed at god and my desire to obey serve and love him it's not 
pointed towards the person in that other car, you know, designed to, to love them. It's pointed towards my own desire to feel justified in my anger. That is actually an unjustified anger. See, worshipping God in every area of our lives is hard. But we always start with remembering God's grace. Remembering his love and forgiveness and his mercy on us as sinful people who are undeserving of that. Responding in repentance when we get it wrong, because we will get it wrong. And seeking to live in continued obedience as we strive to live for this God who's rescued us from death itself for eternity with him. If you're here today and uh, you don't call yourself a Christian or you're kind of hovering on the, on the border, I hope you're hearing today of a God who loves you and wants relationship with you. So I want to ask you the question, what does your heart yearn for in this life? What, what drives you? What, what, what are you living for? And what does that thing have to offer you? Because if it's true what we've been thinking through today, nothing offers what God offers true life. I mean, it's something worth continuing to think about at the least. And if you have questions, I'd love to chat. Or if you're more comfortable uh, writing questions down on the communication card, you can do that as well and just put it in the bucket at the end of the service. I'd love to think through who Jesus is with you. But now for everyone, um, last couple of things. I think that there are some traps that we can fall into when we think about what it looks like to live our lives as worshippers of God. The first being this, it should pop up. We can replace worship of God with worship of works. We can replace worship of God with worship of works. Uh, have you ever been on a, a roster at church and looked at the people around you who maybe aren't on that roster, who aren't serving in the way that you serve, and you just think, man, I'm good. Serving in the way I'm serving when other people aren't doing this. God must think of the world of me. Look at what I'm doing. I mean, wow, someone give me a golden star. It might just be me, but I can be a very, very proud person. And I might not put it exactly in those words consciously, uh, but there are definitely times when my heart has screamed that out to me. With the focus on the great job that I'm doing of something rather than why I'm doing that job in the first place. Forgetting that I started doing that and helping, serving in that way in the first case, place because God loves me, because I love him and want to worship him with my all. I think sometimes that, that golden calf that kind of sits there in front of us, we make that mistake of feeding it. And then scarily, sometimes we can't even see that the golden calf is there in the first place. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we keep feeding it and feeding it and feeding it. We can replace worship of God with worship of works. And that leads into this second trap that we can fall into. Because we can fall into the trap of thinking that worship is only between me and God. That it's not about the people around me as well. But think about the Israelites in Exodus 32. I mean, collectively, they are called to worship God and obey Him uh, together. They're to do that individually, but they're to do that together as well. So as a church, we want to make sure that we're all seeking to live lives that worship God. Now, that doesn't mean watching each other's actions like hawks, and when someone doesn't do the right thing, you jump on them and you say, you didn't do that right. 
It means together, seeking to delight in the Lord in our hearts. Seeking to serve him with the entirety of our being. It means seeking to create a culture of joy, thankfulness and praise to God that his name may be exalted and lifted high above all else, not our own. To get that foreshadowing of Revelation chapter 22, where we stand before God in heaven together, worshipping him into eternity. So in your conversations with one another, spur each other on to live lives that worship God. Share with one another how God is shaping you and share what you've gained from knowing his great love for you. Worship is the God-enabled response that brings all of someone, not just part of someone, to respond to who God is. And we want to share in doing this together. One of the ways uh, we do this together, uh, as I said at the start, is through music on a Sunday Uh, And we're going to spend a whole big, massive chunk of time next Sunday thinking through music as part of our worship, uh, along with prayer and continuing to think through this God-enabled action in our lives. But for now, I'm uh, going to invite the band up the front, uh, and we're going to worship God together by singing and by reminding one another of who God is as our great Redeemer reminding one another of the incredible reality that we look forward to of dwelling with God into eternity and worshipping him in his presence. But before we do that, how about I pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who loves his people. We pray that in response to your grace, to who you are as our God who loves us, who's rescued us from the punishment for sin to life with you, We pray that we'd live our whole lives in response, in worship of you, our great and incredible God. Amen.